0: Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome interview with my undergrad teacher, Michael Anderson, professor of trumpet at Oklahoma City University and third trumpet in the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. Also, episode number 100, can you believe we've made it? Uh, Before we get into this amazing episode, I just wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. This pandemic we are all facing has hit us in different ways. In order to be able to serve their customers while acknowledging the need for safety, Houghton Horns has expanded their policies to include a 15 day money back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories i've mentioned before that they have free in-person virtual equipment consultations to help you make the right choice pair that with multiple easy financing options when you do decide which instrument is right for you terms and conditions apply it's clear that houghton horns is making it much easier to test drive and purchase the best equipment during our uncertain times At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. So whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you are looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today is a special day. We have made it to 100 episodes. It's pretty crazy to think about that uh, all that time ago, January of 2019, uh, we didn't know anything about anything. I'm not sure what we've learned in the last 100 episodes, but it's been a lot of fun doing it. For me, this is a very... Uh, a very special guest to bring on for the 100th episode. It's my undergraduate teacher, Michael Anderson from Oklahoma City University. Um, Not only did he teach me a lot about the trumpet, uh, but he basically made it so I could function in society to a certain extent. He had a long way to go. So um, (laughs) it was an uphill battle for sure. But um, just learning some of the really important things about being able to function uh, is something I'm incredibly grateful for. And so... I thought it would be cool to bring him on for 100 episodes and uh, just talk to him, the normal kind of stuff, but just see if we can dig into some of some old memories, some things I'm curious to kind of dig into some of his perceptions about what uh, my time at OCU was like, and then to kind of just draw some conclusions, see where it goes, yada, yada, you know the deal. So first of all, thank you, Professor, for joining me on my podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you.
1: You're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I'm grateful to have a chance to be on it.
0: Well, as always, let's get started with uh, going back as far as you feel is relevant for us to get a sense of how you got into music, uh, some of your path, if you have interesting stories. We obviously have a connection of Denny Schneider um and right. through that. So we can talk about some of that. But I'll just kind of turn it over to you and uh we'll just kind of walk through your musical career.
1: Well, let's see. Um I was really into music as a young child. You know, I I sang all the time, according to my mother, and You know, when they came around and it was time for instruments, I was ready to go. Uh, I had already seen the trumpet. I had a relative who played trumpet at the Moose Club. Jerry Argodyne was his name. And I had seen him and fell in love with it kind of on the spot. Uh, But in fourth grade, back where I went to school, they would bring out string instruments in the fourth grade. And I begged my mother to play the violin because I just wanted to play an instrument, any instrument. I'd already driven her crazy with the recorder, uh, these little song flutes that they give you in third grade. And for some reason, she knew I would have hated the violin because I'd only talked about the trumpet to that point. But here they are with the violins in school, and I was ready to go. And But she didn't let me, and I'm forever grateful for her to have that foresight. <laughs> uh, the, can you imagine me as a violinist? Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> So um, they started band instruments in the fifth grade. And actually in fourth grade, we moved to a really small town in central Illinois called Fairbury, Illinois. My mom remarried and uh, my stepfather uh, lived in that town. And it was really a great move for us because it was a tiny town, 1500 people, but an incredible band director there. And he started me on cornet in the summer of my fourth grade year with private lessons. And then fifth grade was was band. You um, know, real small band program, but the band director was, uh, and still to this day, you know, really quite spectacular and renowned. He's retired now, but we're very close. We're, we're great family friends. Uh, I love the man dearly. Um, and he really, you know, did for me what a lot of teachers do for students. He, he gave me a lot of confidence and he set me up To succeed in music, even coming from this tiny town, he brought in great student teachers from the nearby university, which was Illinois State University. Uh, So I got exposed to really fine music early on. Uh, I ended up going there for college, um, uh, majored in trumpet performance, did all the things there, got a lot better. And then I ended up taking a graduate assistantship in Nebraska at the University of Nebraska and studied with Denny Schneider, our our mutual teacher, uh, who also did a great uh, amount of things for me. I sat next to him in the Lincoln Symphony for, it ended up being 23 years. And that was a huge education for me. Just to sit next to him and be his colleague was incredibly rewarding and valuable to me. So I did my graduate work there, my master's degree. Uh, I went off and toured for a year, and I came back, got married. I started a doctorate there at Nebraska. My wife and I were the first two people in the doctoral program at Nebraska, but neither of us finished. Um, I was going to go to law school at one point.
0: And I didn't know just- that.
1: Yeah, really disillusioned with music because uh, I wasn't in school. I was touring with the Bobby Lane Orchestra, which is a Mickey band, dance band that toured around the region from Lincoln. And Steve Mendick and I, my roommate at the time, this is right, you know, this is before I got married. We we both were going to go to law school together and we took t- t- the LSAT together. I did really well. I got a scholarship in Nebraska. I bought all my books And he went on uh, and got his law degree, and he's been a lawyer ever since. He he was a district attorney at Fresno for many years. But I took a job at this little liberal arts college in Blair, Nebraska, which is just north of Omaha, called Dana College. Uh, It was a middle-of-the-year thing, kind of an emergency thing. I had applied for the job in the summer, but didn't get it. I was runner-up. And the guy that did get it had some problems and had to leave. So they called me, Hey, can you come and start this job? So I did. I didn't know whether it'd last a semester or not. And fortunately my wife was teaching voice there at the time, uh, adjunct. So I took the job, we commuted for a semester and then they gave me the job full time, temp tenure track, the, the whole thing they, you know, uh, they gave me that gig and we moved there and, we stayed there for 18 years. Um, started our family there. It was a really wonderful place. Unfortunately, the college is closed now. After we left, there were, uh, you know, all the problems kind of came to head for a small Lutheran liberal arts college. And unfortunately, it had to close. That's a whole nother long story. But I taught just about everything there. You know, I taught uh, I was the band director for 10 years. I taught one semester of woodwind methods. That didn't go so well. So <laughs> we I taught percussion methods. You know, uh, I taught first year theory and oral skills. I taught courses outside of music. I taught an interterm course on fly fishing. I mean, I I was kind of uh, became a Renaissance man when I taught at Dana because that was the culture there. Um. I started TPIN, which is the Trumpet Players International Network. It was the first um, online discussion forum dedicated to the trumpet, and that was in 1993, I want to say. Uh, so that kind of got me known all around the world in the in trumpet communities. Starting uh, TPIN, and it still exists today. It's still running. It's just it's an email listserv, and at the time there was no world war, world wide web, so uh, it really brought a lot of people together. And I've met thousands of people through through that a- endeavor. I don't run it anymore, but it it does still exist. Um, got really involved with ITG while I was at Dana. Uh, you know I went to an ITG conference and went to their board meeting and said, "Why don't you guys have a website?" And they looked at me like I had grown another head. They had no <laughs> idea what I was talking about. you know, and so that got me that one question got me really involved with ITG. and that's when you uh, became that,
0: webmaster.
1: yeah, soon after that. <laughs> uh, that was in nineteen ninety five and in ninety six we we launched the first ITG. Website. Me and Steve Glover, who was the editor of the journal at the time. Uh, and I've been director of the ITG website since. ever since then. I'm still doing it. Um, countless conferences and meetings. I've been really involved in that wonderful organization uh, and have met just hundreds and hundreds of fantastic people uh, through doing that work. Um, and all from Little Dana College that nobody ever heard of. While I was there, I was playing in the Lincoln Symphony. I was substituting an Omaha Symphony and the Omaha Opera played in a great uh, brass quintet with uh, Mike Thompson called the Palladium Brass. Uh, you know, constantly freelancing and gigging uh, and teaching. Uh, it was a really rewarding time in my life, but I realized I was spending most of my time teaching things other than the trumpet, which I felt was the most I had to offer. So I decided to look for another job and, you know, things were kind of going downhill at Dana. You could see it happening in advance and I felt, you know, this is the time to move on. So uh, I started applying for jobs, no doctorate, you know, but lots of experience and lots of connections and people that, you know, knew and wrote great recommendations for me, you know, people that are highly respected in our field. Uh, interviewed at a bunch of places, and in my second year of doing that, I got the job at Oklahoma City University. I was very grateful for that. It was a perfect fit. I've been there ever since. I absolutely love teaching there. I adore this university. Uh, I bitch about everything, of course, but <laughs> you know, I've, it's it's been a great place for me, you know, and I'll finish my career there without question. Got a spot in the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. I play third in in that orchestra, and I've uh, had really great experiences doing that. Lots of freelancing. I do some contracting. Um, real busy as a as a teacher. I built a studio there. You were a very important part of that, and. Um, I've been doing what I love ever, ever since we moved here. Wow, that was a lot uh,
0: for me. That's really awesome to hear um, that you uh, are. You've sort of found that place that you adore, that you're happy with, that you're going to be comfortable uh, and happy to retire um, there. Obviously, I have a lot of really formative and important memories, and you are such a huge part of that. So, um, instead of just sort of talking around it, I kind of just want to dive into. I mean, I've heard you talk about this on on social media and stuff. So I just love your your views on like what you feel like the role of a teacher is for a student. And do, I mean, I know you know think it goes beyond just teaching the trumpet. So I'm kind of curious um, how you manage what things are your responsibility, what things are the student's responsibility, yeah. and like how much encouragement do you give? How much do you take on those kinds of things? I think it's a really important conversation that I would love your perspective on.
1: Well, I could go all day on this. (laughs) Uh, You know, as you know, I have strong opinions and uh, I'm not at all shy about voicing them. Uh, Sometimes that gets me into trouble, but most of the time I I think it's honest and and right. Um, You know, I have no training as a counselor, but I'm a counselor. And that's happening more and more and more and more and more than than it used to. I, I think... Um, the world is just more difficult. It's it's just more difficult to be an adult, a young adult now. And so, you know, I really try to look at the whole person, not just the trumpet kid, you know, because most, frankly, most of them are going to be doing something else in their lives. You know, there's only a small handful uh, that really go on to do what I do or to do what you do or some form of that. So to me it's about the whole person. And I, I think my time at Dana had a lot has a lot to do with this outlook. Um although I, I don't I I don't spend a lot of time counseling. I'm there when they need it. And I, you know, I, I try to help them through maybe difficult times if I can. Um you know, the vast majority of it is getting better as a trumpet player, but that does lead to a lot of life crisis conversations. And some of them are, are bad enough that I don't feel like I can handle it. And so I re- work hard to get them into professional counseling because that's not my field. You know, um, I I don't really like the term father figure. Uh, it It's laden with a lot of, stuff that I'm not into but I I do try to be someone they can bounce things off of and that they can feel maybe comfortable talking about that they might not talk with their their peers with you know um, I really do I end up doing a lot of life counseling when they come to me and say I don't think I want to be a trumpet player and it's hard for a student to say that to their trumpet teacher I try to make it easy for them to say that to me because I'm not, I'm not into them, just their trumpet playing. You know, I'm into them being what they want to be and and helping them find that. So I, I have counseled students out of being trumpet majors, right? Um, not a lot, but you know, I help them. I try to help them understand that you know there are many ways they can go, and I particularly try not to react the way they may think I would react when they tell me they wanna change their major or they're considering this path rather than this path. You know, I try to help them understand what it means and and what's going to happen if they take this step or what's gonna happen if they take that step, you know? And I always try to color it from, you know, maybe what a an advisor, I, I am an advisor, you know? Uh, what an advisor would say, not, I'm not trying to steer them toward what I do or what I think they should do. So, you know, I, I I think it goes beyond just training them to be good trumpet players. I think the applied one-on-one face-to-face time is special in college. There's nothing like it. There's no other degree that has time like this where you're weekly face-to-face alone with students. And I really, really enjoy that part of it. it. I do it all day, all day, every day. And I never thought I'd be happy doing that, but I've, I found that I'm extremely happy doing that. I find it very rewarding.
0: So part of, part of the reason I, I have waited to interview you is because there's a lot of myself as a human being that I've been like exercising and dealing with, right? Part Mm -hmm. of some of the decisions I've made in the past and the ways I've handled certain things. And so um, if you're willing, I'm sure you are, because it's probably slightly more vulnerable on my side, I'd like to kind of share with you part of my perception of my time that I've come to understand. And I would like you to tell me if you feel like there's any validity to this or if I'm remembering things wrong because I don't want to build my understanding off of something that's incorrect. Sure. Part of my feeling about my education was I, I would... I. Remember myself being like kind of hyper functioning, like I was. It was clear there was an amount of talent there from the very beginning, yeah. And I was clearly willing to work very hard. And there was an oh, amount yeah. of aptitude that I think I des- didn't necessarily understand was helping me to the degree that it did help me. I understand mm-hmm. it now, of course. I'm trying to yeah. use it to its maximum ability, but I do feel there's a part of me that feels like no one asked me some of the questions that I wish people would have asked me, like, why do you want to do these things? Are you sure that this you're doing these things for the right reasons? Because I can look back now and remember times where I felt like I wanted to do things because I liked like the way Bud Herseth made me feel is the way I wanted to make somebody else feel, but kind of about me less about sharing my love of orchestral music. Like I wanted to be the center of attention as if it was a way to sort of validate myself, gain notoriety. And I don't remember very many people having, or anybody having conversations with me about like, why are you doing what you're doing? Is it sustainable? Those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Am I remembering this incorrectly? If and And what's your sort of your side of how you would handle somebody like me, who's like, clearly headed in a direction. And I don't know if any of that kind of makes sense, but I just, I'm kind of curious for what your response to that might be.
1: Well, you were different, without a doubt, you know, from from the day I met you at your audition, you know, you played a tremendous audition. Uh, you were clearly, uh, you know, on an advanced path very early. And I saw a lot of potential in you, not just you know, for the training that you've gotten and the talent that you had at the time, but in terms of your drive and you seem to have what it took to become an orchestral trumpet player. And I recognized that right away, early on. We had this conversation when you were a freshman. I'll never forget the conversation I had with your mother standing in the back at Petrie, talking to her about your future. And where you were headed, and uh, I was excited about it because I'd never really felt that in my teaching before. So, you know, I'm I'm probably, you know, we made up our mind <laughs> early on. Yeah. This is what you're going to do, and for me, it was you know full steam ahead, and everything I did with you was to support that goal. Everything, And they had, you know, there were steps and getting you into Northwestern was part of that, big part of it, getting to the point where you could get into Northwestern, where you could be noticed enough to to do that and to move on. Uh, I knew that's what it would take at the very minimum. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you and I had very few, well, what else could I do conversations, Right. (laughs) right? We never got there. And plus, you gotta understand, you were a baby when you went to OCU. I mean, so young as is every freshman, but you're as a player, you were older, more advanced, and you progressed very, very quickly from there, you know, so the thought of I wonder if Ryan really wants to be bud her <laughs> never came it never came up, right yeah, yeah it didn't come up in my thinking frankly i was I was unidimensional, so yeah you know, we had later on, we had many talks about it after you had left, you know, when you'd grown and become, you know, more of an adult. And we still talk about things like that quite often. But back then to me, it was one foot in front of the other. Here's step A, here we are on step B, C, and we just did that, you know, put our head down and that was the goal.
0: Yeah, I I actually completely agree, and and I'm glad I've waited this long because there was a period of, like relatively recently where I felt anger towards like people that were in positions of authority for not like I was like why didn't you have this conversation with me why didn't you do this like and I've mm-hmm. I've sort of come through that to understand that. that like a everything that's happened to me has brought me to this point so like there's no reason for me to be upset or angry about it and. You know, like in some ways, that's kind of why I asked you about what's the responsibility and the role of a teacher? Because in some ways, like that's a conversation between a parent or like a pastor maybe. Of course, like a a trumpet teacher could do it, but there's a number of places where that particular conversation could happen. And I just, what I remember the most was like this feeling of, I'm just gonna go insane and practice so hard, and go and then on the weekends, just get obliterated. And like, yeah, you know, I remember very specifically at the end of a hard semester, it was like the end of my junior first semester, of my junior year, I remember being at a party where I was like, "I'm going to get so drunk that I don't remember this semester happened." Like that was the <laughs> level. I mean, and there's an amount of I was having a good time, but like, if I'm honest, there's an amount of like, I could see this is how I was dealing with this amount of pressure that I was putting on myself. And Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody put it on me. But that's like what I wonder is if anybody saw that happening and didn't have a conversation that was like, hey, you seem to be like spiraling out, you know. Or maybe it wasn't spiraling out and I'm remembering it
1: incorrectly. Uh, There were many times I was worried about that. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, I don't have a checklist for each student. It's like, okay, we got to cover this. We got to cover I, I, of course, do In their trumpet curriculum, there's a checklist. But in terms of the life stuff, there's no checklist. I deal with what comes up in front of me. So if they bring it to me, we talk about it. Mm. I don't go out of my way to say, uh, unless they're struggling in the studio or struggling in their classes, and you can see that they're struggling in life. Um, You know, the the spin-out part, you know, there were times when you and other people you know, under my wing at the time, partied their asses off, but shit, so did I. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so it didn't seem that out of, out of the ordinary to me, but I do know that there were times when I was really worried about the drinking. But, you know, I'm not your dad. And it wasn't my place to to address that because I only knew a part of it, right? I wasn't. Sure. It wasn't right in front of me. Uh, and you functioned. You were you were a very high-functioning drunk at the time. Yes. Not saying that, I, I you know, I didn't have any feelings that you were an alcoholic or anything like that, but you guys went after it hard. And it wasn't just you, right? It was a group thing. I think
0: my environment had not... It yeah. wasn't the cause of it, but I think my environment didn't necessarily... It encouraged it. We'll put it that way.
1: You know, and by the time you were into that heavily you were older and I, I, I didn't feel it was my place to nag you about weekend drinking. Now, if, if you came in obliterated to a lesson or to a rehearsal, if you, if you screwed up over and over and over, of course we'd be yeah. addressing that, but you were functioning at a very high level and that's what was in front of me day after sure. day.
0: And I would say to an extent at OCU, it was one thing, And at Northwestern, it was a whole nother deal. The closer I got to it becoming this thing that could be realized, like the pressure got that much more, like it just increased, you know, like as I was getting closer and getting better at the trumpet and seeing it, like the drinking also increased, you know? And that's like, that was the part where I was like, I feel like people around me had to be like, what is going on? Like, this is not... We got to be careful. You know, I've been told things like, one thing I can count on, Ryan, is that you were always the drunkest person in the room. Like, that's what somebody said about me at one point in time, you know? So, I just was curious because it's something I've really dealt with. And like, from the Northwestern perspective, I'm still not, I still haven't reconciled everything about that because, you know, I feel like it was even more of a one-track thing. Yes. By design.
1: I I worried about you more then than... I did when you were here. Yeah. Because and, it's... you know, we talk, we talk on the phone and, you know, and you tell me about some of your escapades and, um, you know, it did sound serious to me at the time. But again, I did, I just didn't feel like it was my place to scold you or try to counsel you out of that. That's something you had to do yourself. You know, what good would it have done me? I was still at that point advising you mostly on professional stuff. Yeah. You know?
0: No, I don't, I don't disagree at all, at at all. I think, you know, I don't know where, that's why I was asking about the line, right? Like, I feel like now, by the grace of God, in my opinion, I'm doing okay, right? Yeah. Hypothetically speaking, it could have gone the other direction. And then I would wonder, you know, I feel like it would be easy to wonder, well, should I have said something? Should I have not? If it would have gone the other direction, but still, even then, it is still not necessarily your responsibility, regardless of the outcome. That's like my thing to bear,
1: yeah, but I would have had a lot of regrets, too, because, you know, who knows what kind of impact I might have had on that at the time. It's really a crapshoot. You know, sometimes you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, and sometimes you you default to inaction, right, when you're not totally certain of your place. You know, I was totally certain of my place as your trumpet teacher. I was not totally certain of my place as your spiritual advisor or your life coach. Sure. You know, I, I'm I'm an amateur at that. I dabble in it only be, only when it's right in front of me. And then I just use my instincts. I don't have any training in that, right? So it it's really hard to know when to step in. And like I said, I'll step in when it, Comes through in the results of this of the work. you know, and your work was exemplary yeah. and and you and you got by well academically too, which is a mystery to me. <laughs> I don't know how you did that. You know, and I use you as an example to students, not by name, but I use you as an example of students who complain they don't have enough time. And I talk about you practicing four hours every night from 7 to 11 in my office, night after night after night after night, and still doing your homework. You were in every ensemble. You, you played lead in everything, and you made that work, you know? And I don't think everybody can do that, but they certainly need to know that it is possible. Yeah. Right?
0: This is something I'm interested in, in as well if we kind of want to shift into this idea of like what is an appropriate amount of time to spend doing an activity. Because I'd say my practice is as productive as it's ever been, you know, like how crazy yeah. I've gone about this recently. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'd say an hour to an hour and a half. And I know I'm functioning at a different level and my needs are different, but an hour to hour and a yeah. half is plenty for me to get done what I'm needing to get done. So like I'm wondering if four hours on top of everything else. I think I could because I was, right? Like, there, I, I was doing it, so I could. But I'm not sure. I mean, you can't go back and do anything differently, but to me, when I hear that I was practicing four hours, I, I cringe a little bit because I was like, gosh, I must have just been, like, beat up all the time. But could still do it, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I don't think you were. Yeah. You know, I, I think you were efficient and a very efficient player early on. And, I think you were just learning tons of repertoire, tons of excerpts. It was about, at that point, once you're, you know, your junior year and you were, you know, you were trying to get into Tanglewood and trying to get into the Northwestern and various things, winning, you know, entering solo competitions, that sort of thing. I I think you were just obsessed with repertoire. And so a lot of that four hours was spent learning music very inefficiently.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> Com- kind of what I compare-
1: mean. <laughs> compared to what you do now, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I spent a lot of time helping people learn to practice more efficiently, but you, for you, it was about the volume. Yeah. It really was.
0: And I think it, one of the things that I reflect upon is I think for that period of time, I was able to get by, but I, I also felt this like I kind of had to relearn things every time I came back to it, you know, because I was <coughs> right, yeah, learning. That's it not uncommon. A, yeah. So, I feel like that's kind of why I've gone down this, uh, this other road where I'm not going quite so far back when I'm picking oh, things yeah. up. And again, I'm operating at a different level of efficiency, so I think that's part of it too, but... I'm curious, I'm curious for, I'm going to tell you a story that I remember. I'm curious for your thoughts. Part of what I'm developing in my, sort of my philosophy, I suppose, is sometimes we're just playing stuff that's too hard for us, you know? Yeah. And so it's hard to develop good habits because like we need to establish the habit first before we can start asking difficulty. Amen, man. And I remember, well, I remember a story where you assigned the Bich four variations yeah, uh, uh, and I remember just struggling and struggling and struggling to do it, and then I remember I had some sort of a breakthrough, and then you, I told you, and then you were saying, "Well, I wouldn't have assigned you something that you couldn't master," but there is this period of time where it was just like rot, and I'm not sure if that was my inefficiency or if it was like possibly too hard. I'm kind of, if I don't know if yeah. you remember this, but I'm curious oh, yeah. for your thoughts on like, um, just those kinds of thoughts. What's your philosophy yeah. on how we would assign repertoire? Because this is something I was terrible at as a teacher.
1: Okay, so I have a really strong opinions about this. Uh, you know, high school kids are often playing repertoire. They have no business playing and they half-ass their way through it. They develop bad habits trying to make it happen. Even all state etudes are too freaking hard in in Texas and in Oklahoma even sometimes. They're just, you know, the vast majority of the students are, are getting worse trying to master these stupid etudes. And it's the same thing with solos. You know, my first time at NTC, there was a kid in the high school division that was playing the Peter Maxwell Davies on a D trumpet, and you know he got through it, but it was it was so anti-productive for this kid, right? Uh, and and that's that's a trumpet teacher doing the wrong thing, you know, giving repertoire to to young students that are developing skills that they just don't have the skills to play. So it's it's something that I try to as a teacher, it I'm constantly walking the line. It's always a crapshoot. You know, you don't you want to make sure you're challenging the student to get to the next level, right? The next step. But you don't want to challenge them so much that that you know they digress. And sometimes that happens. It still happens to me after all these years. You know, I've been teaching full time college trumpet for 36 years, I think, maybe a 37, I'd, I've lost track. And I still struggle with these decisions, right? I, You know, I'll get to the point where, you know, the repertoire we've agreed to on a recital. Just this year, I have four students doing recitals, and two of them have made changes, repertoire changes, a couple of months ahead of their recital, because it's just too much. You know, you hope they grow enough to be able to handle it, but at, at some point, you've got to draw the line and say, hey, we want this recital to be really successful, so we need to take this piece out of it, you know? I I blew it. And you never know, you know? So that's this line. You wanna challenge them to raise their skill level through the repertoire or the etudes or whatever, but sometimes you you miss, and that's a fact of life. And you explain it to the students and they get it, you know, Uh, but you can miss the other way too. It's like, oh, you spent way too much time on this thing. You can already play and master. It's not really challenging you to the next level. So finding that sweet spot is tough. And you know, that's why I developed the A2 curriculum that I have. You know, it's it's progressive. It it steps through er- levels of difficulty very, very gradually. Some may say way too slowly, and for some students it may be a little slow, but I think it's better to err on the side of slow than it is to skip massive steps that need to be in there. So I'm I'm really very dogged about what I call the etude train, you know, and that they the students progress through this etude train so that they're not tackling repertoire that they never stand a chance of playing. And I think teachers need to take that responsibility more seriously. I mean, there are very few high school students that should be playing the Tomasi. There are very few high school students that should even be playing Aretunian, for that matter, yet it's the most commonly played solo at, at NTC and other other situations. I think you played it on your audition. That's not to say that some can't, but quite often trumpet teachers assign stuff because um, it's a, a standard in the repertoire, but the student just doesn't have the skills built up yet to make that a positive experience. So for me, any performance, I want it to be a success. I try to give them every opportunity for it to be successful. So first juries are always really easy pieces. I want them to have a win. A notch on their belt. I don't want their first jury to be a failure. Their half junior recital, Same thing. Senior recitals. I, I try to make sure that I know they're going to be successful. Yet. Making sure they're playing standard repertoire. Learning standard repertoire. And that, that they are challenged to go up another level or two through the process. But it, you know. We don't always hit. We blow it sometimes. And I think most applied teachers can relate to that.
0: For for me, the way I've begun to approach it is if it's going to be too easy or too hard, I would err on the side of too easy. Yeah. Because it's you're going to be ideally establishing good habits. And Yeah. I think what I've started to try to embrace is the idea of, well, what is... Like, what is success, you know? And mm-hmm. I have, I think for a long time, I defined success as I'm just going to get through this thing, you know? I'm just right. going to get the notes and get the rhythms and stuff. But this might be a function of just becoming more refined and all that kind of stuff as a player. But to me, success is now like, what can, is there anything I can play as well as Hokon Hardenberger, Right. And like, right. if that's mm-hmm. Arvin, page 28, number 19, that's like what I'm going to practice now. I see. And, and then basically building up like a work capacity, but starting from that point of success and right. like just sort of redefining what the idea of success is being, like doing it at the level that you want it to be. And there's a lot of nuance because you kind of have to go a little bit past so you can see where the where everything falls apart basically. And then you know you design something that fixes those those things. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think for a long time, and I'm curious, this is kind of where the question is headed with a little bit of backstory. Um I think that a common way of thinking about progression is assigning repertoire that's too difficult and that drives your progress. But I've started to wonder is there any validity to um having the repertoire be an extension of the skills that you have you're working within that maybe it's slightly too easy and that the etudes and the fundamental exercises you're basically like slowly building that up and the this general work capacity that you've built is what drives that progress that then allows you to access those solos so it's sort of yes. th- the reverse way of of doing Absolutely.
1: That. I use that. I have for many years. You know, my I call it the A2 train. The A2 curriculum starts with you know, liqueur book one, number one, which is just half notes, right? And they have to, it has to be perfect. We're, we're striving for perfection here. And it's through these very simple etudes that gradually get harder and harder and add newer and more odd musical elements that the student learns how to practice efficiently and, you know, how to develop a system. I say this all the time, we're developing a system of practice with practice habits that you can rely on for new music so that you never have to fear new music. So you've got this system, you're handed a piece that looks really difficult for you. And if you just apply the system, all you need is time to apply the system and learn this new piece of music. And, you know, the A2 curriculum is what establishes that you've taken that very concept to an extreme degree with your, the, you know, way you develop your practice routines. It's like, you know, my idea of a, of a, of a practice system for learning music on steroids, right? That's why I was so into it. Um, because it's an extension of of the way I've been teaching for many years, um, and those etudes look ridiculously simple. And I, I'll start a new grad student on liqueur number one, and they're they're like, "Why am I playing this easy stuff?" Yet they can't play it in time. Right. And they learn. They realize, "Oh, I don't have very good time. I need to work on that." Or you know they. are most a lot of it revolves around time, but you know, they discover things that they've skipped over in their undergraduate study or in their high school study. They, you know, they're because they've been assigned stuff that's too tough for them. Right. And they end up skipping some real basic fundamental ways of learning music. And that's why they're still amateurs and not professionals. So you you know, I I think simple with perfection is better than really, really difficult with lots of mistakes in it.
0: Obviously, I totally agree, right? Yeah. Like, this is like what I'm basing a lot of this off of is Yeah. I totally agree with that sentiment. And like you said, I've sort of taken it to the nth degree of this idea that like if I have this system I believe in, at, then I don't have to worry about when I'm going to get there because I believe I right. will get there. And there's a yeah. lot of, for me, a lot of power in believing that in five years I could be a player that I don't even recognize even at this yes. level.
1: Yes. And that system gives you a level of confidence that if you're just randomly approaching the music and learning it in a random way, you just don't have that confidence in yourself. A system gives you the, the freedom to know that you're going to get there. There's, there's no doubt about it. And that what comes with that is a level of confidence that you know trumpet players have to own mm-hmm. to be successful. You know, it's more probably more true for the trumpet than it is just about any other instrument. If you don't have confidence in your head, if you're not hearing what you're going to play the way you want it, it ain't happening. Right. And if you have doubts in your mind about what you're about to play, doubts in your chest, you feel it in your chest, that doubt, you're doomed. You know, So the system and relying on a system and establishing a system that you know will get you there is, it takes the pressure off, right? And it gives you a level of confidence that you might not normally have.
0: Is it okay if we dig into this a little bit? Yeah. So what do you, what are there elements that you can uh, say would be in any good system? Right, so instead of, because it might look different for different people, but are there elements that will always be there? This for me is like my gold method, these pillars that I talk about that yeah. are in. But for you, are there any pillars that will always be in a good system as evidence of if this is not there, you probably don't have a good system?
1: Well, here's here's the main pillar for me. Um, coming to the realization that what you hear while you're playing is not what's coming out of the bell, Right. Reality versus perception. And you have to come to terms with that. If you can come to terms with the fact that uh, you can't edit while you play very well, and that editing actually takes your brain out of the right place where you need to be, which is, and this is a Mr. Jacobs thing. You know, I studied with Mr. Jacobs. I I should have mentioned that at the beginning. Yeah,
0: I wanna talk about this too. Yeah,
1: I I spent eight years on and off taking lessons with with Jacobs. and this is his thing, if you're not hearing the sound that you want in your head, like the strongest klaxon alarm, if it's not going off in the front of your brain all the time, then you're not going to sound the way you want to. So if you're editing while you're playing, if you're thinking about what's coming out and, and passing judgment on it, then your brain is way far away from where it needs to be. So for me, I try to establish that in students through what I call proofreading. You know, it's like proofreading a paper. Uh, I could go on and on and on about the analogy, but basically you have to record yourself a lot and you have to set the trumpet down on the stand and listen to that recording and analyze where you're going wrong. Is your time, and it always starts with time for me because that's usually the number one element that younger players are terrible at is playing with good time on their own. They play with good time with others because somebody else is providing the time, you know, a conductor, a drummer, a bass player, the guy next to you, you know, where you're drafting off of them. But when we're judged in auditions, particularly, or solo situations, you're all by yourself, nothing there to provide your time. There's no metronome to provide your time. So you got to first address that. Do I have a a good internal sense of pulse? Do I I have the skill to subdivide? Do I have the skill to play with really good rhythm? Because frankly, if you don't, professionals don't want to play with you. They don't want anything to do with you. So that's job number one with young kids. And the only way you can evaluate your time is to record it, listen back, tap the subdivision on your leg, really aggressively and see what your tendencies are. Are you getting faster? Are you getting slower? Do you rush repetitive eighth notes? Do you do you drag at your breaths? I mean, all the things that that contribute to us having bad time that we don't realize while we're playing. Plus the recording, having the recorder go going, It absolves you from having to edit and listen to what's coming out at the time, and therefore your brain is free to go to, this is what I want it to sound like, and stay there. And that's where the best results happen. With the recorder going, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're playing in time. You're going to check that out later. I think that's probably the biggest pillar in in my teaching and, and helping students become independent practicers so that they can get better without me being there. You know, it's it's so different than athletics. So we have to coach our students to become their own coaches, whereas athletics, their coaches are there all the time, right? So I, I think helping students learn to become their own teacher is my number one goal. And this is one of the ways that, that I help them develop that. And then the next level is for them to develop complex practice techniques. You know all about this, right? Complex practice techniques. I'll say, well, how did you practice this? Well, I slowed it down. That's the number one simple practice technique. But you got to go way beyond that. It's a great practice technique, but there needs to be a couple of dozen practice techniques. So you learn, I teach them skeletonization, you know, how, how to eliminate parts of what they're doing to simplify it so they can learn it gradual being able to hear the intervals. Num- you know, there are many ways to work on that. I could go on and on and on about this. But the most important thing is that they learn to do this without me, that they can do it on their own and they can be successful without someone spoon feeding them every little thing. And they have to face reality. That's why my, you know, one of my mottos in the studio is face your weaknesses with sword in hand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the most important part of that is facing your weaknesses, accepting your weaknesses, and doing battle with your weaknesses. And then I'll say, the sword is me and my curriculum, you know, what we're doing in the studio, what we're doing in your lessons. That's the weapon that you're going to face your weaknesses with. And part of that, for me, part of this process is over a, you know, however long a period of time I have them, is to get them to wield the sword themselves. So it's not me battling their weaknesses. It's them batter, battling their own weaknesses. And then they go on after me and and they're more competent at figuring things out without seeing me every week. That's a big time goal for me.
0: So Does that get two, to what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I have two questions yeah. about that. The first one, we'll go back just a little bit where you were talking about these mm-hmm. pla- practice techniques. One of the things that I have struggled with and I bet many other people do are knowing which tech, which practice technique to employ at which time, what's the right one because I don't think they're all created equal for all situations. Amen. So beyond experience, right? Like, (laughs) do we, is there a way that we can, and this might be just too technical, like it might be getting into the weeds (laughs) a little bit too much, but for me, this is like one of the hardest parts about practicing is knowing which one to employ where. Do you have any ideas on that or is it just like, Every yeah. you know it it depends on the situation
1: that's a toughie because where do they where do they come from? Where did I get them? you know I'm a student of the trumpet, and I've studied with a lot of great teachers, but I've also observed a lot of other teachers and some of it is just common sense. They just come to you through experience, you're right. But some of them I've stolen from other teachers, you know, little little things here and there. And I call it my bag of tricks. You know, I have this bag like Santa of practice techniques. And it depends on what the music is in front of you. You know, so how do I relate that to a student? I've thought many times, I need to write a book. I need to write all these practice techniques down and with examples of, okay, in this situation, here's a way to approach this particular lick or pattern. But then I thought, it's going to be, you know, as big as the Hickman pedagogy book. There's just too many to try to present in that manner. And I think that that's part of what you're trying to do, right? Uh, For me, it's, you know, I'll teach... The student the same practice technique over several etudes or solos, until suddenly they find themselves just doing it naturally. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkably inefficient way to to relay information, but I'm not relaying information. I've already I relay the information the first time, but the repetitiveness of it is is helping them establish a skill that just comes to them, not information that they can call up it's it's a secondary nature kind of thing that they just find themselves digging deeper into how to fix this lick other than just playing it slowly and so you know when they leave me they leave with maybe seven or eight different varied practice techniques that they have complete ownership over and then they start to create their own right and that i think that's the best i can do yeah given the time. I don't see any systematic way to make students develop practice technique systems. It has to happen through almost osmosis, just through going through the etude train and and doing things progressively and repetitively. Uh, I'll use the same practice technique on students dozens of times before they start to do it on their own.
0: Yeah, I have a few thoughts on this.
1: I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh,
0: well, for me, the first step I would love to tell people is like, for me, slow practice is not like a practice technique. It is the beginning of the process. You Amen. Know? I, yeah. I feel like that's like a way, like we just got to shift our mindset of like slow practice is where you can establish great habits. Like yep. that's why we Amen. do it. We don't do it to make it easier. We do it so you can be that best player already to yes. the best of your ability.
1: And to me, th- just to interrupt. Sure. The The slow practice from the very beginning, I preached that because if you do that, you don't un, have to undo crap that you've learned Absolutely. wrong. You know, and that just bullshitting your way through an etude just to, and the excuses. oh, I just kind of wanted to hear what it sounds like. It's such a waste of time. Totally. You know, and, and so I really try to, Particularly with the young ones, get them out of that habit. You know, you know slow and slurred to start with. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. I mean, I'm gonna abandon this thought to say another one and I'll come back to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a quote, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he was talking to like a journalist or something like that. And this guy was saying, you know, trying to dig at Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, saying, like, you know, I wouldn't want to look like you anyway or something like big and bulky and Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) said don't worry you never will right (laughs) and it's interesting to me because what I think what is what the crux of this is is like what made Arnold Schwarzenegger Arnold Schwarzenegger is not like some weird thing. It's the way he approached everything that he did in the gym. And so, if we want to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, the fastest way we'd be able to do that is to pick up all of the habits that he did and just figure out where we can do those habits. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you were talking about wasting time. I never, I don't think, I can't remember the last time I just ran through something to see how it would sound. I never, ever do that. Because I just know, why would I spend that minute doing that when I could just start practicing slow, you know? Right. And so the way... So I go back to what I was saying a second ago is I've really been interested in this idea of workflow recently. Obviously, as you know, through like video editing and photography, Mm -hmm. like there's a certain order you do things in to make sure you're not going to have to go backwards later. Right. And undo certain things that you might not be able to undo. And I've been thinking about that with practice. Like, is there a workflow that we could apply to our practice sessions that would make sure we're covering... like we're, we'll cover this first and then this. And this is what I've come up with. I'll share it with you. See what you think. Because I haven't really talked about this. I, d- I talked about it in my Beach 5 video. But um, basically, the first one is you need to pick an optimal starting tempo, right? We co- This is like the slowing it down. Like this is a prerequisite to practicing with this method. Ideally speaking, if you've picked an appropriate starting tempo, let's say generally speaking, 90% of what you do is probably going to be okay. Right, Like if it's something mm-hmm. that's within your skill level, 90% of it is gonna be okay. So then you're left with this last 10%. The next step that I would go to is visualization because i've been reading a lot about visualization and supposedly the way it works in your brain is it's like you're actually doing it if you do it right. So for me visualization includes like the like the kinesthetic feeling of moving air on my lips, what it feels like to move. So it's not just i used to think it was just the sound, like what were the notes, but now i'm trying to get this holistic like what would it actually feel like to produce sound on the instrument. And i'm because generally speaking that 10% when I come to try to visualize it, I can't, right? That's like why I Mm. missed that 10% is because I actually can't, I can't hear it in my head. Like what you've talked about, the mental model. And so I try to actually see how many problems I can fix by just making a better mental model by thinking about it and then Mm. I play my second repetition and let's generally speaking that fixes almost every problem especially if it's within there and then that last like two or 3% that's when I'll do the practice techniques because it's very clear I got to get on the horn and experiment and see.
1: So let me me talk about that. I'm curious, yeah, what you think? Yeah, Um, I think that's great for you but the problem is and here's the disconnect that I'm not sure you're I don't think you've taught enough students to know this you have great ears. So you can visualize anything that you see in front of you. You're not really visualizing, you're audiating, which is not a word, it's a word I made up. It should be a word, right? Because it's the it's the aural uh, version of visualization. It's a very powerful tool. You're capable of, of audiating at a much higher level than the vast majority of students that I see. You audiate better than I do, way better than I do. So, for you, you know, to pick up ninety percent just by going slow and to actually what you call visualize everything working together, um, most students can't do that. They don't have the ears. Now, the students who have the ears can. They just need to be taught to do it, but very few do. So, for me, the the first step is is just hearing the pitches with no rhythm, no tonguing, nothing. Just being able to go from this pitch to the next pitch to the next pitch, because that's what's gonna give you the confidence and the ownership once you add the other items back in. That's the skeletonization part I'm talking about. So, you know, for someone who's, you know, extraordinary in terms of their ear training, yeah, that, that system will work really well but i don't think it's it's a great starting point for those who just don't hear like you do you know what i'm saying
0: i do do you think there would be do you think that that's a a personal thing a repertoire selection issue or it's just like different strokes different folks
1: like I, i'm not I, I don't get what you're asking
0: like do you do you think that their inability to hear it is because the repertoire is too difficult for them to do that? And if if they were assigned like Arb and page one, they would be able to do this? Or do you think it's just like, literally people are different and they're going to handle it differently?
1: Yeah, I think people are different, definitely. Um, I think ear training has to be a part of pretty much everybody's early uh, study. And yeah, it is a difficulty thing. You know, most my students, when they come to me, they can hear a Simple getchel that moves by stepwise motion, or maybe has a couple of thirds in it. But when you get into wider intervals, you know, like Bordoni's or etudes that don't move in stepwise motion or predictable motion, uh, that's when a lot of them get lost because they're they're just simply not hearing where they're going. And if they can't hear where they're going, then everything falls apart. Yeah, totally. So to me, that's where it starts: is can you actually hear? hear those pitches well in advance of playing them, you know, that audiation thing. And that's a Jacobs thing too. And I think we should be doing a lot more ear training in early studies. You know, the Europeans got us over a barrel on that because they do solfege so early. I mean, you remember Tomash, mm-hmm. you, you know, great ears. Well, he was trained that way. You can be trained that way, but if you get to college as a music major and you can't hear, um, intervals beyond a third and you can't sing those intervals, sight reading, sight singing, you've got some making up to do, right?
0: Do you think there's, this is a thought I've been, I mean, this is a thought experiment, right? I realize what I'm about to say is like kind of sure. like ridiculous, but do you think there's any value in the idea that instead of just giving a kid an instrument when he was like, like when they were he or she or they or whatever it were uh, in fifth grade? Do you think there's any value in taking that fifth grade year and teaching them some rudimentary theory, teaching them a little bit of aural skills, maybe listening to their instrument and then in sixth grade giving them an instrument, but they have a cursory understanding of what's happening? Do you think that would change their trajectory long-term to have that little bit of knowledge or do you think like it, it's all able to be picked up at the same time?
1: That's a really good question. Um You know, I'm not a music education expert. I have not spent a lot of time thinking about the beginning, the beginners and the formative years. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt because, you know, I deal mostly, I haven't had a beginner in decades, right? So, um, you know, I use my own experience. And, you know, in third grade, we got these tonettes and we learned to read notes and we learned to hear things. We did, you know, there are, young uh, music education courses where they're learning solfege early on. Kodai is another method. Suzuki is mm. another method. Um, you know, the whole band thing, like in this area, doesn't start till seventh grade, I think, you know, which I think is way too late. And as I said, I started in the summer after my fourth grade year. Um, so, I don't really feel confident to answer that question other than the the students that have come to me, the few students that have come to me from a different music education model have come to things oral, the oral parts of what we do much faster than the typical American student.
0: So I understand it's not a direct correlation, but I'm sort of referencing the way I'm learning to do these things like a true beginner, right? Learning about lighting, learning about film. And part of it is I have a sort of an idea of what I'm trying to accomplish before I do it so I know what information I'm lacking. Or I try to set it up and it's like, okay, this doesn't look anything. And then you have... I'm not saying that a fifth grader is going to be like that. I'm just saying if a fifth grader was possibly set up with a modicum of information that is like here's what you're trying to accomplish because I worked with some like high schoolers and they like there was rudimentary stuff of like rhythm reading and things like that that just wasn't there but they're in a yeah. like a band program that's great and they win awards <laughs> you know and it just seems like yeah it just seems interesting to me that those two things can exist at the same time
1: right yeah well yeah, we could go on and on about that. You know, the state of music education. I think it was, I think it was a lot different when I was a kid sure. than when you were a kid, and then than it is for kids now. Um, and it's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about. But it's interesting that you pull in the photography and videography, thing into that. And of course, it shouldn't surprise me that you're making parallels there, because. um it's creative work and also very, very, very technical. But y- you you don't know this. You don't know what you don't know. Sure. Right? This is Tom Hooten's thing. You know, you, you, There's a sliver of what you know about the trumpet. And then there's a bigger sliver of what you don't know about the trumpet, but you know that you don't know it. And then there's this huge rest of the pie of what you don't know that you don't know. Right? Yeah. And you're in that position right now with photography and videography, and so am I, even though I've been doing it for 10 years. Um, you know, there there are basics, fundamentals that you would learn in photography school or film school that you have no clue about. And so you're doing these advanced things. This is like somebody in high school playing the, you know, trying to play the um, Peter, Peter Maxwell Davies. That's what you're the equivalent of what you're doing now. You're trying to edit stuff that you've shot without any knowledge of basics and fundamentals and how light works and, you know, how cameras work. And you're picking it up as an amateur and you're trying now to f- make it be professional, but you're way ahead of, of where you would be if, you, if this were your actual career and you were starting as a young person and you'd be taking classes and reading textbooks about it. And I'm the same way. You pick up things that, you know, that's the downside to YouTube is you can learn to do some pretty advanced things, but without the fundamental background knowledge, it's, that's going to bite you in the ass later on. And it is. Yeah. So it's the same thing for music, you know? Sure.
0: I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of what I'm, I guess what I mean is like, I think that's part of what I mean is that, I think I'm aware that there is a lot that I don't know that I don't know. Mm -hmm. But in this age, we do have something like YouTube, or you can buy courses, you know, that will walk you through the basics of that kind of idea. I mean, there's there's just the the ability to get information is different. And I just just think like there's aspects of music and the way we do things that I feel like could benefit, obviously, we talked about making parallels. The simple parallel of acquiring skill as someone who spends time in the gym, uh, there's many, many parallels to acquiring skill as a musician. Now, one thing that I didn't understand right out of the gate was we have this extra thing called music, right? That's not the same thing. And so how we build that into the process is of great interest to me. But that's kind of why I... That's like why I asked the questions because like maybe you have a perspective that would help me know what I don't know. That's one of the most fascinating things about the podcast. And just trying to be like real about where yeah. I'm at right now is I just I'm a, I'm happy to admit I don't know anything. I feel like I don't know anything, but I'm I would I want to learn. And I just feel like other disciplines have sort of moved into this place where people like me can get ho- like very high quality information.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's debatable. I think we can debate that. You know, um, shotgun information is not the same as very well-structured education. Totally. You know, so, you know, I've learned a lot about photography as a hobby, and I've actually turned it into a profession, but I didn't, I didn't go to photography school. You know, I, I learned about F-stops f- from a friend of mine on a napkin in a Burger King. <laughs> right? I didn't ever read that in a textbook or hear that in a video. He just laid it out on a napkin for me. That's how I learned that. Mm-hmm. So learning modes are very different now than, than they used to be. The, only, the way to learn that in the past was either from a mentor, a teacher, or coursework there was no youtube and the problem with learning things on youtube that it are very complicated like music or photography or videography or painting or whatever is knowing what to actually look at first sure and what to look at second you know and there are really good courses out there that cost a lot of money that walk you through this step by step by step and if you have the patience to do that and the means to do that, then you're getting a fairly traditional education in a non-traditional way, and I don't think that's any way to learn how to play the trumpet. Sure. And it's prob- and there's probably master photographers out there that just scoff at that being the way to learn how to be a good photographer. Uh, you know, and there are huge gaps in my education as a photographer, and it it rears its ugly head sometimes. Fortunately, I'm not trying to make a living that way.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of my, that's part of what I've come to as well is I think we, at least this is my my interpretation is we often put on it that it's like mastery or nothing, right? And it's like we either have to get to the point where we know everything and if we didn't, it's not worth it. But like, right, obviously right. your photography, the what you do, like you took my headshots, they look great, I've used them. Like you've taken many other headshots for people that portray them as you see them, which I bet is one of the most rewarding parts of mm-hmm. doing it. And whether it's your full-time career or not, like you have access to that same, whether or not it's structured in a course or not, you have access to being able to say, if I would, if I really wanted to spend the time to do this, I would have the ability to do it. And
1: Yeah, but that took me many years of just experimenting and trial and error, part very, very part time hobbyist level. Yeah. It just takes more
0: time to do it that way.
1: Yeah, I, I suppose it does. Yeah. But it's also a very forgiving field, you know. Yeah. whereas music is not.
0: I don't this is I'm not even trying to promote this idea that we could learn the trumpet on an online course, right? right? Like that's ridiculous. Obviously with many of the things that I'm talking about, I do you've even said this that there is some transference between music disciplines in terms because yes. we're talking about organization more than we're talking about right. pedagogy, which I'm actually very happy to stay out of the pedagogy discussion generally speaking, although Yeah. um I can't help that way. But that's kind of what's interesting to me is being able to share the systems with which we do things. Instead of right. it being like, here's how you play the trumpet, here's how you like learn how to play the trumpet. That's the right. part I'm really interested to see if anything comes from it because I have experienced where we know we need to build a system, but like I'm sort of building it on my own with no information of like what is right, where to start, right. like you said. So with yeah. my system, I can like no give theory. it to somebody. Yeah and i can yeah. say start here it may not be the best but this will give yeah. you a foundation with which you can build from
1: well i think your systems are genius i think the the systems that you've come up with on your own without training and developing systems right are are extremely innovative and creative and i think it's potentially the the, the next level of of applied music instruction and not very many people are doing it Nobody's doing it like you, nobody. And is it effective? Yes, it's very effective. Uh can you get other people to do it without you? That remains to be seen. Yeah. Right? You 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 are at the crux of it, right? And I've experimented with trying to do your routines, you know, with my students. And I'm not able to do it I don't have the understanding of it that you do. And I revert back to what I have relied on for many years, my own systems. Sure. So the question is, you know, well, let's take Jacobs, for instance. You know, the wind and song, song and wind pedagogy is, you know, was one of those extremely innovative ways to look at brass pedagogy 40 years ago that is now very commonplace. And how has that become commonplace through students who were students of Jacobs and students whose teachers were students of Jacobs? It's just kind of been a phenomenon that's carried through the business and is now extremely common. Could that happen with your systems? You know it you need to be teaching more, I think, for that to happen. You know, these great master teachers had tons of students. Claude Gordon, Bill Adam, Arnold Jacobs, all those guys, they taught, Max Schlossberg, they taught individuals day after day, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 a day for decades. And that's how their systems became, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Com- not commonplace, but they became the canon, mm. right? Yeah. And And you're just not reaching nearly that many people because teaching is not what you do full time.
0: Yeah, so obviously I'm trying to go to social media to connect with people. Right, this is one of the reasons I'm interested in storytelling is because I just don't think I've found the story that resonates with the person that's going to want the thing that I'm doing because it's it is mm-hmm. different. That's I I recognize yeah. that it can it can sound complicated to me. It's not right, but right. I know to someone who's not versed in it, um,
1: it can be very overwhelming.
0: Yeah, and so I I mean I've actually. I've like, well, we'll talk about this later, but.
1: Uh, I mean, well, let's, no, let's stay on this for a second. You know, you can, you can look at J, Jacob's pedagogy and you can distill it to two words, wind and song. And you can do the same thing for Adam. You can do the same thing for Caruso. You can do the same thing for Claude Gordon. And the students have these, these catchwords that are, that take complex, ideas and distill them down to very simple language. And, you know, that's what's being delineated. The details are murky, right? Right. And the details have to come with lots of hours of experience teaching. Yeah. And I think that's probably what's left for you is, you know, distilling it to something that people recognize and then your students are the ones that are spreading the word over time.
0: Yeah, and I just I mean part of the problem is that I didn't know what it was for a really long time. Yeah, I know. You yeah. know, like I knew what it was for me, but I am I I do feel I have a level of self-awareness to understand that what it means to me is not what it's going to mean to everybody else. Again, this is why it's been so important for me to dive into these other Modes or these other disciplines and learning because it puts me back in the beginner's seat to remember. Okay, like we're we're having different conversations about things. You know, I I've learned that what we're talking about here is just what what I believe my system does better as well as anything else is just develops good habits. Like it Mm -hmm. habits where you're building from week to week, month to month you're ideally sounding good on a regular basis. So you start mm-hmm. to feel not only good about your playing, but the more you sound good, the more that becomes the way you you play, right? Just like yeah. the way you do it. And then on top of that, we're reducing frustration, sort of meaninglessness, mm-hmm. hopelessness, and yeah. replacing it with motivation, ideally with feelings of I can get there. You know, these ideas, like you can reach your goals, so to speak. And so I, at first I thought it was like, here's how we get better at our instrument but now i really understand that it's a it's like a system that is aimed to help people develop just better practice habits and then letting that carry them where they want right. to go.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, i think inundation into your system what people can take away from it might not be exactly what your system is that they apply all the time, but they take away their own version of it that works for them at their comfort level. Yeah right um but the inundation is the important part you can't get there without some of that
0: yeah of course and so i
1: and and your systems take a remarkable amount of dedication but we know being successful on an instrument takes that also so if you don't have that you're probably doomed anyway but it's it's even harder for those that are gradually coming around to the amount of dedication it takes to employ your system. That's why it doesn't work with every student. Yeah. Because they can't stick with it.
0: I've just found, yeah. And I think part of the thing is, is it's built, it's like a lot of my system is predicated upon the idea that you have to stick with it because what you get at the end of it is information about what right. worked and what didn't work. And then that's where building right. better systems happens. Is you say, well, how would I build something that would make up for the things that didn't work as well how do i keep what worked well and then over the course right. of 6 to 9 months you've all of a sudden done that in small small ways and you've built this system that's like if i just approach everything this way but whether it's my system or any system you have to like commit to a particular thing the very first time and right when you're yeah. doing that the first week May not go the way you want it to because your chops are figuring things out, and that's when we're going to abandon it because we want instant results,
1: right? And that that instant result thing is a is a big issue with with any system, right? It's you know, do, are you mentally ready to take on any system, right? Do you have the patience? Uh, is your ego in a place where you can accept the challenges that the system brings? Um. And there is no instant gratification in music, you know that. Yeah. Uh, But a lot of students don't, you know, and they have to come to that realization. That's part of my job is helping them understand and taking them from a position where they don't get it to the point where they do get it. And then they can actually make a decision as to whether they wanna continue in that field or not. Yeah. And, and, And this is one of the reasons why musicians are so good at so many other things. Right? I say this all the time to my students. You know, other than pre-law political science, the the most often um, undergraduate degree before law school is music. That Law schools seek out musicians. Computer programming is full of ex-musicians. Um, even med school, they look for musicians. And the reasons they look for musicians is because you're forced into learning your own problem solving. Mm-hmm. You have to solve problems in your practice room by yourself. There's nobody there to to get you through that. And, and if you can solve problems on that level, then you can apply that to any field, right? Uh, can you work with other people well? Well, we have to as musicians. We have to learn that basic skill. And, you know, can you understand higher levels of language because music is a language and you have to learn it and it takes time. And you, you've, you, when you look back on your musical career, you say, man, it took me 10 years to get to the point where I could really make music, where I could really communicate something, or maybe it took me 12 years. Well, all that is really applicable to many other, other fields, but a lot of students that don't grow up learning to be a musician, they, they don't get that. They have to develop that in other ways. It's not that it can't be done, but it's almost certainly done at a higher level of, of music study. You know, So these are the ra- rationalizations I will use with students to say, you should get a bachelor's degree in music because these are the skills that are going to come to you as a result of that. Even if you don't see yourself as principal trumpet of the Chicago Symphony or you don't see yourself teaching like I do. Uh, this will open doors for you because of the problem-solving aspect of it in particular, but also the working with others part of it. That's a speech I give a lot.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I I interviewed just the interview right before you, number 99, Deanna, she was gonna, she got a clarinet performance degree and now she's the executive director of a nonprofit, an arts education nonprofit here and she's doing incredibly well and we talked about what does your music education give you that was valuable? And, yeah, I mean, she talked about the problem solving and just like you said, the patience it takes and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. it's it, it totally translates. And, yeah, you know we were talking about a plan and and what it can do. another I think another valuable aspect of a plan is it it can keep you on track, right? Like if you have a plan you believe in, I talk about this like it needs to like whatever your plan is, it needs to be logical, so you at least have the best chance possible yeah. to stick to it, right? But Mm -hmm. I think it also then when you have those moments of, well, I don't want to be patient or I get frustrated or whatever. This is also a chance for you to like flex that muscle of like, well, I'm going to be patient or I'm going to not be frustrated. Maybe I'll take a break and come back. Like you learn how to deal with these things and possibly grow as a human being, which I think is like I've started to think about. What if we grew as human beings from our instruments, and that was the sole, like that was the top reason we did it, and then everything else was gravy? Like you would just win every day.
1: I believe that. I I call the planning. I call it building a house. You got to build your house, you know. And if you don't, when you're building a house, I mean, I use the direct analogy. You've got to prepare the ground for the foundation. If the ground isn't well prepared for the foundation, that takes sometimes days and days and days just to prepare the ground. You deal with what's handed to you as a construction person. And then you've got to lay a freaking perfect foundation, right? If your foundation isn't perfectly level, then the rest of the work that you're going to do is going to be fraught with problems, right? And then you got to build really good level straight walls or the roof is not going to be level. It's not going to be straight. It's it's not going to last. We're trying to build something that lasts a hundred years. It takes time. Yeah. Prefab houses suck. <laughs> Real houses that are built thoughtfully by expert construction workers with a blueprint and a plan where you go step A, step B, step B. Step Z, step double Z, and you just keep building it systematically, those are the structures that are going to last a long time. And that seems to really resonate with with students that, you know, that think on a little higher level. So, build a house.
0: I think, too, from that same metaphor, um, one that has really stuck out to me uh, would be measure twice, cut once, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I hadn't thought about that one. Like
0: it fits totally into this idea that like it's, yeah. it's worth it to measure a second time, so you only have yes. to cut once. Yeah,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good one. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. Thank you.
0: Yeah, just came to just thought about it while you were talking about that. Um,
1: for me, for me, when I when I'm talking about the system, just to carry this a bit absolutely. further because I think it might be valuable to the listeners. You know, so you're faced with a technical attitude and. For me, I, I, we call it, a lot of people call it chunking, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I carry the metaphor of building a house to bricklaying. So you're going to lay this brick perfectly level, perfectly straight with just the right, around, right amount of mortar. And then you're going to put the next brick in place and the next brick and then the next row of bricks. So, so build your etude that way. Maybe the first four notes is your brick. Every four notes is a brick and you overlap them. You know, so like on a coprash etude, you pick pick the the first four notes and then you take the fourth note and go four notes from there and you overlap them, right? Mm-hmm. And the analogy is that you're putting those brick da- bricks down very carefully one at a time so that the wall is straight and level at the very top when you finish it. You know, so, you know, tearing things down to that point is really what has to happen in, in a lot of technical etudes. So again, that build a house metaphor takes on a different thought process because laying bricks is tedious, right? I mean, just go back to your Legos when you were a kid, you know, you, you, you see this image, this thing that you want to create, but God, you got to put all those little bricks in. And it's the same thing with building a piece of music. You know, if you're, if you're put the bricks in shoddily and they're not level and you've rushed, then your product is going to be crappy, right but if yeah. you're really careful with each brick you're actually sa- I proved to them that they're actually saving time in the long run even though it takes a lot of time to put these bricks together you only have to do it once right whereas if you're if if you're messy with your bricks then you have to go back and fix them and that takes a lot of extra time to do so if you want mastery if that's the goal then lay your bricks very precisely and carefully the first time so they're right
0: yeah, I think the other mental shift that is necessary from this is to also then recognize that the the time frame we're looking at can't be like four years then, right right It has to be <laughs> fifty years or whatever time frame so that we recognize that, well, if I spend a year laying bricks, that seems like an eternity one quarter of my four years. I'm just so far behind of where I could have been. But if we spend f- yeah. one year out of a 50-year chunk, we enjoy 49 years of good right. playing because yeah. we, we did that.
1: Yeah, that's taken it a lot far farther than I do. I'm just talking about building one piece of music. Well, you know what I mean, though, this idea but, that... Yeah, it makes sense, yeah.
0: We're looking at such a small... I, I think our site doesn't go far enough ahead to justify or rationalize why we would spend that amount of time.
1: Right, I agree. Yeah, that that that's true.
0: And so, you know, one of my low-key goals is to figure out how to play like Sergei Nikariakov right now, right? It's just,
1: <laughs> I'm not really
0: like super pursuing that because I understand like what that is. Right. But, you know, there's a little bit of my work that reflects that goal. Right. And like, I, I'm okay if that takes five years. Yeah. Because if I could play like Sergey Nikariakov in five years... I would get to enjoy from age 37 on playing like Sergei Nikariakoff. And I'm fine with that. Yeah. But when I was a kid, I was in the biggest hurry possible to get to that space where I could prove to myself that I was going to be successful in the way that I wanted to be.
1: And look at all the time you wasted. Yeah. I mean, we had a conversation about that. Did you need to practice four hours a night for three years to, to go on to that next level? I think you did. You know... Hindsight is 2020. 20. You look back at it now, you think, God, I wasted so much time, but you didn't. You you needed to do that at that at the place you were at that moment. That's what the then Ryan needed to to actually really make the massive amount of progress that you made. I mean, you were a really good high school trumpet player, but you know how competitive this this business sure. is. You had to make a lot of ground in a very short period of time with a, a lot of hurdles in your way. So, yeah, it took tons of dedication that, you know, you could do in a half hour now what it took you four hours to do then. That's part of growth.
0: Yeah, and I actually don't have many regrets about the time spent. And I don't have really any regrets about any of it, right? Because it's like my story. Like, no one can take that away from me. But if I were to pull one thing out that I wish I would have... And it's so funny because we have talked about this this entire interview... When I got out of Northwestern and I was in my job, I was like, how do I get better? Like I didn't understand how mm-hmm. to improve without somebody weekly saying, "This is what you're going to work on next. This is what you're going to work on next," which is the whole reason this uh-huh. system exists. Because I, you know, I was I was forced to if I wanted to do that. And and I, we've talked about this before. I remember calling you and having conversations about wanting to become a personal trainer for a while. You know,
1: yeah. Like uh-huh. I was
0: totally, like you said, disillusioned with it. But that <laughs> learning, like you, like I don't have any really any understanding of building systems in music. But I deep dived into building systems for working out because there are so many resources available to learn how to build and why you would build. So again, no system is perfect, but we're building it on certain principles that can make it reflect what yeah. your goals are. So that's like why we have these gold methods built on these principles of progression rather than like the repertoire guiding it. It's these principles that are guiding it.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, weightlifting, powerlifting is a, wholly, a whole different ball of wax. I mean, it's, it's, there are people that, that's how they make their money is teaching you how to do that. Totally. You know, and it's no different than me teaching trumpet students how to get better at what they do, except that um, it's a, it's a totally different kind of institution. Yeah. Right. The, the, the powerlifting thing is, it's not a collegiate based thing right? It's not an educational uh, institution-based thing. It's an individual thing. You take classes, yeah, but they're not like going to college. It's a whole different thing. And so that translates a lot better to learning online than learning a musical instrument at the level you need to to be a professional.
0: I would argue, too, though, that part of the reason that that information exists is science. Like, they just have scientific studies behind how, like, there's, yeah. there's countless studies of we took yes. this test group and this test group to yeah. find out what was better muscle activation this rest period or this right. rest period. That and we is,
1: don't do that in music.
0: Yeah, I, that's actually something I'm interested in, like yeah. exploring what would that look like? Because it kind of seems like, how would you do that? You know, like-
1: The scientific method. Yeah, yeah,
0: everybody's so, everything is so, it's hard to say like, I'm we're gonna get like 10 juniors and do this. Well, like the spectrum of juniors is like, you know- Like yeah, like to get people that are, yeah, it would be very, very difficult to do that. But I'm sort of doing it on my Instagram feed right now, right? I'm just saying things like, who has evidence that practicing every day is a good idea? Who has evidence that taking a day off is a good idea? And sort of trying to ascertain like, what is your evidence, which is all anecdotal. Interesting. But like, it's interesting. I mean, the the feedback I've gotten from people who don't take days off is like, I'm basically either, if if I take a day off and I come back, Things are like out of whack. Well, like we need to talk about the way you're practicing. If one day off is sending everything mm-hmm. out of whack, or this idea of like, well, if I take a day off, like there's almost this I could have practiced and I could have gotten better. So you you're, can't
1: get that day back. Right. That's a Bill Adams saying. You know, you can take a day off, but you can never get it back. Yeah, which is is which is an attitude. I it's a motivational saying, right? But
0: from a place of like no, like. I don't know what evidence exists that like, that's that day that you can't get back was necessary for you to do.
1: Amen. You know where I am on this. I'm all for taking days off, right? I Um, think, well, I have, I
0: kind of want to speak to that in a second, but the the information I got back from people who take days off, almost, almost all of them were like, my mind is better like yeah. my mind is better i'm fresher uh, some one guy was like i had breakthroughs almost every time i take a day off like this idea that some people who don't take days off seem to be saying i just like can't afford to not play and right. people who are taking days off are like i'm more productive because i'm coming back to the work and i'm just doing like higher quality work overall
1: so it depends on the individual sure. right but i would i would posit that the individuals that just can't take a day off maybe have a little mental health issue there related to what their goals are. And, you know, maybe that was instilled into them from a teacher. Maybe it, it comes from, you know, a certain instability mental instability. I'm not saying that people that don't take days off in the trumpet are crazy or anything like that, but I think there is a little bit of uh, of a psychology to this. Sure. There's a lot of psychology to it, actually.
0: And I think one of the most interesting differences was many of the people who take days off said things like, I found that days off are often just what I need in my playing. They yes. have, They know that about themselves. People yes. who are not taking days off are like, I feel like it can't, you know, I feel like it can't be good. Like there's no ownership over that as opposed right. to people who know that days off help them.
1: Yes, and I have to make my students take days off. It's like, okay, you're headed toward, I can see you're headed toward a little bit of a crisis here. I want you to not play the trumpet on Saturday. Can you do that? Are you in a place, do you have a rehearsal? Do you have a gig? What, what's going on? What day can you take? Well, I suppose I could take Saturday off and they don't want to. You know often they don't want to because they're so into it, you know they're so into the process and they're so into the value of 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 doing their routine every day religiously, you know uh but they're always better right. as a result of it you know it's it's always a positive thing to do, but you know I have to often order them to do it, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, so I was going to say too, I remember when in undergrad, we were talking about how much I was playing. I am convinced that the only reason I didn't sustain a lip injury is because you were like, you need to take a day off every single week. Yep. I'm convinced.
1: Well, because you were were playing so much. It was insane the amount of ensemble work that you were doing and then that nightly... Four-hour practice. It, that was it,
0: mostly during my senior year. I don't think that was. Yeah, yeah. That was just getting ready bit. for those auditions and. Yeah,
1: yeah, a little bit in your your junior, but uh, you know, it was just, you know, it was my instincts screaming. Yeah. That's it's too much, you know. And you've told me many times that that's probably the best thing that you learned from Bar- Barbara is how to stay healthy, yeah. and that she really emphasized that a lot. I actually learned a lot about that just talking to you about the things that she she said I you know I spent some time quizzing you on that because it it really does interest me her her thoughts about trumpet health I think are are something I wish she'd write about
0: yeah <laughs>
1: maybe someday
0: but I remember when one of my early lessons with her she gave me sort of a talk about injuries because I yeah. didn't even I hadn't even considered that being injured on the trumpet was possible until I got right. to Northwestern
1: yeah because you'd endured you know, yeah. really difficult days, and not had much trouble. But with like,
0: it. I don't think I remember one person at OCU getting injured. Now that might be a problem on the other side of the spectrum of maybe not doing enough work or something <laughs> right. like that. But
1: yeah, in some cases, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. She she sort of told me this narrative of like I got to be careful, and I was like, oh yeah, I just like take a day off. It's not a big deal. And she's like, she's but almost told me this thing as if it's like, well, our students like they got injured because they just care a lot and I was like I care too I just take a day off (laughs) like right you know I'm not saying it has to be that simple but this idea of like I'm doing this because I know that I need to do this
1: yeah but you also got to keep in context that she's recruiting the best of the best the cream of the crop the people that are really almost to a manic level obsessed with practicing and so it's like she had to teach them to put the brakes on when it was a healthy thing well, right, to do. But
0: many people, like one guy in particular, this is the worst injury that I that I saw there. He would tell me like he was preparing for he was a freshman preparing for ensembles, doing his lessons, preparing for the Detroit Symphony principal trumpet audition. And then yeah. he's like, oh, I just would go into ensembles, and from the very first note, couldn't feel my face. Yeah, and then just kept terrible. Playing. It's terrible. And then he yeah. ripped like the muscle in his lip. Right. Like that wasn't the moment where he's like, something's wrong. It was like, yeah, oh, I just care too much. It's like, I don't that's, know if yeah. that's the narrative. Yeah.
1: That's not healthy. And she knew it. Right. And she the thing is, is she she would get people like that at her school because of the level that yeah. they, they they were at. They they would get people that were totally obsessive and they would actually go way overboard. To the point of injury. Yeah. And so she developed a way to help her students deal with that, which was that's not something I face very much. Sure, sure. And
0: I, I I don't I'm not disparaging. I I mostly told that story because for me, injury didn't seem like it was a thing because I like I credit it to you saying just take a day off. It's yeah. fine. Be okay. Not a big deal. It is okay. <laughs> I don't even take light days. Some people are like oh I'll just play a little bit. I'll do this nope. like I actually Uh -uh. program for all of my clients. They do the same thing I do. So it's six days of work, three A days and three B days. So you Mm -hmm. play the same thing on A day, you play the same thing on the B day, and then you take a day off. And it's like the system is programmed so you get all the work you need to get done in six days. So you don't feel like you need that seventh day to get something arbitrary done.
1: Right, and that's you dealing with the psychology of someone who doesn't want to take a day off. You know, And you program it into there. And I think that's really smart. You know, for me, you know, right now I make my students take a day off when they seem headed toward crisis. I try to, you know, head them off at the path. But I don't don't tell students anymore that they have to take every seventh day off. You know, I did that for you alone. Yeah, yeah. I have them take a day off when they need it.
0: And I think, again... I understand that I'm operating in a different place at a different level, right? Like I have different yeah. demands on my life now than I did. So a day off right. is actually very yeah. helpful. Yes. Um. But mm-hmm. I I actually, you know, some people said, I take a day off, but like maybe every two weeks or every 10 days. Like, right, you yeah. Know, so it's, yeah. I don't think it has to be every six days. I just do it because it puts it in a nice little bow, you know?
1: Right, yeah. And it works, it's worked really well for you for many years.
0: Yeah, and- Yeah, I I don't know. I think this is a fascinating discussion, one that, I've like I said, I've sort of tried to do this, like, um, scientific method. It's not really scientific, but trying to get a group of people to speak about their experience and try to draw some conclusions about what the effect of this particular thing or this particular action might be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think... I don't know what that would look like long-term, but I'm really interested to... I would love for people in general... To talk about practice the way that like athletes talk about stuff, right? Just with this level of like, I know what's going on. I'm making these decisions for specific reasons to target this yeah. specific thing, rather than I'm just going to like play these exercises and hope everything gets better. Well, which is I not, think
1: there's some some that do. You know but what I'm it, saying? It's not right. Yeah.
0: It's not like I'm, and this is like partially, I have to remind myself of this all the time that like my experience or the experience of what I've come in contact with is not the global experience. Like I'm not trying to put that on right. there. I, I And I don't think everybody has to be as, a, you know, neurotic about it as I do. But mm-hmm. I just think a level of, I know, the simplest form of this is like, I pick a skill and then I choose exercises to work on the skill. So I know exactly why this is in my routine. Something as simple as that. Right. So it's like super goal oriented, and I think it can get we can get confused a little bit. If I play Arban exercises, I will get better articulation, but I don't think that it works without knowing like what it is that you're trying to improve.
1: Well, I, I'm going to take, uh, yeah, I'm going to disagree with that to a certain point. I I think it depends on where you are. Yes, you know the the young players, the 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 fresh ones that come to me. They don't need to know why for a while. Sure. They just need to do it. Right. And the why comes later when 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 they've mastered certain things and they've seen the process work. And then you can say, now, do you see what we were doing? But they don't need all that information. It's it's often the information and the and the pedagogy of it can get in the way of the doing and get in the way of the progress because, you know, paralysis by analysis, to use a Jacobs thing. Uh too much thinking about why, you know, i have students that'll say, well, why am I doing this? I say, it doesn't matter, just freaking do it, right? Because I don't want them making that full circle because that gets in the way of the progress, overthinking what they're doing. You know, I want them, and this was a Caruso thing, you know, when I was heavy into Caruso, when Denny had me doing Caruso, uh, you know, I would read Time Magazine while I did it. The whole idea is to get your mind out of completely out of the process because it's just all it is is training right you're not you know overthinking actually gets in the way of your body doing what's right for it and I believe in that to a certain degree particularly with young players that need a lot of fundamentals that oh you know I've got really inquisitive freshman or sophomore students it's like no you don't go down that path you know I and I have I have an older adult student who's an amateur, he might as, you know—he's not too far off from being a, uh, a beginner. But he's an engineer, and he's been an engineer for thirty years, and so he wants to know about horn angle and stuff that we avoid talking about on purpose, right? And so I have to counsel him: please keep your mind away from those physical things because it's going to impede your your growth. For now, we can talk about that. After you've mastered things to a certain yeah, yeah. level. So I think there, you know, everybody's a little bit different. Every student's a little bit different. Yeah, I'm sort of taking
0: the approach of not trying not, of course, not to overcomplicate what it is, but trying to define basically trying to define what success looks like. Like, so what is good articulation? Ping ring sing, right? Like you have these yeah. ways of trying to Draw their attention to what success would look like. So there's some direction in the actual work, something like flexibility exercises. Yeah. Well, we want the airstream yeah. to remain exactly the same no matter what you're doing.
1: Better and then- not talk about airstream then. <laughs> That's what I'm exactly what I'm talking about. You know, my method of teaching is is modeling all that, not talking about it, but modeling.
0: Yeah, but how do they do it without you?
1: They, get, they have that model in their head. It's audiation again. You know, we'll do flows today, and so I say, okay, you're resting as long as you play here, but while you're resting, you're hearing me in your head, or you're hearing her play this in their head, or whoever the model is, you know, doing it purely by audiation, not by thinking of, oh, I got to keep my airstream steady. You don't want that. You want, you know, for the younger ones particularly, you actually want them to stay away from that at all costs because it, it can really impede their progress. If, if you can just get them to think about the result, what do they want it to sound like? What is that sound in your head? Keep that in the front. Chase the sound. Follow the sound. Let the sound guide you. That's why, why I say things like ping, ring, and sing. You know, it, it distills and it keeps it simple as to something where they're thinking about the result, not the input. Right, As soon as you start thinking about all the inputs, then the the brain is in the wrong place. You gotta keep your brain on on what the output is i'm I'm adamant about that yeah. and that's that's totally a Jacobs thing, and that's a thing that Denny believes strongly in. Bill Adam believes strongly in it it's It's a foundation of many brass pedagogues is keeping your head in the sound that's that was the way Adam always put it keep your keep your mind in the sound, keep your mind in the sound. Yeah follow the sound chase the sound
0: i i really want to have this conversation but i have i have a concert at 7
1: you have a concert tonight
0: yeah brass Tech concert this is the first time oh, nice. in the history of my podcast where i've had to end it earlier than i want to <laughs> because i have to go
1: yeah but i want to no, have this because
0: i've my my what i've come to recently is not different than that i just feel like there i do think there is some value in kinesthetic awareness of your playing. Yes. And, at some point. And I I mean again we we could we might just be talking about different levels of yeah. of what it is, but I have found that to to have at least in my perception, of course, like this might not be what's happening, but in my perception Driving kinesthetic awareness into my playing has been the thing I believe that has oh, yeah. helped my consistency go from like I'm doing pretty well to like I can play almost anything. But I know that's <laughs> me.
1: But <laughs> I'm is there no. You.
0: Right. But then to me, <laughs> I, I don't. And this is the conversation we'd have to have. It make, in my mind, it makes sense. Why wouldn't we introduce this level of kinesthetic awareness? No. No, it? that's
1: wrong. I'm just telling you, it's okay. wrong. You had Denny Schneider you had Denny to lead you as a young developing player. And I'm convinced that's why you're able to look at the physical side of things so well now. But there's no way you can start somebody who's young in their journey of becoming a great player that way. Yeah. It just doesn't work. It's, it's, you know, I could relate it to golf. Uh, thinking about two much detail it is going to impede your growth when you're young. Now it's great for you now. But I'm telling you if you if you taught 10, 10 or 12 students at varying levels every week for you know a couple of decades, I think you'd have a different perspective yeah, on this.
0: and like I said, this is partially try, I, partially why I'm trying to stay out of pedagogy because it's not really like a super strong like desire of mine. Um, mm-hmm. but we're I talking find like
1: that statement we're odd That's an odd statement for you to make because you're all about teaching.
0: Sort of. Yeah, sort of. I think sort of. (laughs) But like, we're talking like wind on the lips type stuff, kinesthetic awareness, right? Like when you breathe, it's all right there. And then just having it be at exactly the same spot. That's like 98% of what I think about when I play.
1: See, okay. So good. That's a Jacobs thing. You you may not remember this, but I taught you that, and I teach that to every everybody, and that's Jacob's distilling his incredible knowledge of physiology. You know, he could have been an MD. He had so many, so much knowledge, and he'd taken so many classes in physiology. He was an expert at that, but he would distill it down to little things like that. Mm -hmm. Wind at your lips, wind at your lips, Mike. Don't think about anything else, and that's. proves exactly the point I'm getting at is that if you you throw too much of the physiology side of things at young students, then they get bound up with that. They're thinking about way too much of the physical side, not enough about the results. Wind at your lips is like a golf swing key. One thing that gets you on track- Yeah, I totally believe in those little swing keys. Yeah, I think
0: we're then talking about a very similar thing. Cause, like, yeah,
1: I think we are. Yeah.
0: Like, I don't mean you should think about your Airstream. It's just like to me, I'm thinking about nothing stopping the wind at my lips.
1: Right. Mr. Jacobs always said the back of your lips is the first point of resistance. Yeah. You know, that's a very simple way to say, keep your air steady and yeah. only focus at, right at your mouthpiece. And then so for flexibility
0: you know? where this, sorry to interrupt, but where flexibility no, no. where this started, it's basically like, it's a two-part process for me. One is the inhale. Like there's the setup and then there's the execution, right? The setup is how you're breathing in. The execute is how you release. And then from there, if the wind at the lips is consistent, then you're just making sure that the sound is evenly centered everywhere. And that's like where the trumpet needs to be played. Right.
1: That's the output, you know, and one of the things I spend a lot of time with my students doing is getting them out of the thought of wind in and wind out sure. as a two-step process. And I think I, I stole this from Carl Sievers. Think of the wind in and the wind out as a circular motion. Yeah. One thing that the whole process of taking wind in and releasing it into tone, there's no in and out. It's all It's all in out. I know that doesn't make no, sense, I, but if you I could see my hurt. hand, yeah. <laughs> the way I'm directing this, uh, you know, so inhalation and exhalation is one thing is is a mind blowing perception to me, and it really does change the way students play if you can get them to to think about it that way. And yeah, that's a that's a physical thing to think about, but remember. It's still the tone and you mentioned the evenness, right? That's still what we're after. That's still the goal. And you give them little, little bites of the physical stuff and try not to go down that rabbit hole too deeply.
0: Sure. And I I guess to to finish out, just to finish out my thought, and I would love your final thoughts and then we'll finish this out. But um, for me... The sound comes first. This is like sort of how I think about it. The sound comes first. This is like, you, you got to like record yourself to know what you sound like. Like, you're going to hear a lot of stuff you don't like. Eventually, you're going to hear something you do like. And at that point, that's when I might start to pay attention to like, what is the kinesthetic feel of that sound? Because I feel like it gives me, yeah. it gives me two points of, of being able to find consistency with it. Not only do I want that sound, but if I I find if I breathe on the lips and release on the lips, it's that same consistent sound, and it it like helps me as a performer d- d- uh, drive more consistency. Not only into my setup, but into my releases and stuff, because I eventually get used to well, how much energy does this release need yeah. to be able to create that sound? And once I find yeah. that sound, I sort of try to reverse engineer what I might, what cue, like you said, this one cue I might focus on that produces it. That's kind of what I meant by the kinesthetic feel of it.
1: Sure. And, you know, you're an advanced player, so you're reverse engineering this. You know, if you were a young player, you, you aren't capable of that. So this is where your teacher comes in and gets your head in the right place. You know, you have to know what your sound is first. And most young players don't, so they start by modeling. And then after a while... They start to develop the the sound they hear that's personal. It's a personal sound. And they they, you know, there's so much repetition of that. And and it gets to the point where they can't not make that sound. And if they're not making that sound, they crave it. It's like, God, my sound isn't there today. What do I need to do to get there? And that's where you develop your own little swing keys.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, in golf my swing key. If I was slicing, my swing key was just to tuck my knee in a little bit even though it was a lot more complicated than that you know to get the ball to go straight in the middle of a round that's what i would do for you if your sound isn't working you think wind at the lips, and bam, there it is. You, you through experience, long, many years of experience, you've learned what little kinesthetic swing keys can put you on the right path, even though the whole process of, of producing a sound is much more complicated.
0: Okay, I got it. I, I do have to
1: go. <laughs> I no, I, I totally get it. This could be a four hour podcast. We don't been, want that.
0: We, yeah, we'll definitely bring you back on. I don't, if maybe zero people will want to hear your sultry voice again, but (laughs) I'm, I want to have this, I want to keep this conversation going. So, okay. Um, I'm all for it. I usually try to provide an opportunity for my guests to contact you if they want to say like, I enjoyed this podcast or if they want to, you know, be able to just say anything or know more about, you know, OCU, stuff like that. So if, where would a good place to be, be to find you?
1: Well, I'm all over Facebook. Um, my email is also on okcu.edu, which is my university uh, website. Uh, but my email address is really easy to remember. It's just manderson, manderson at edu, which is Oklahoma City University. But I, I'm pretty active on social media. I don't do Instagram, uh, but I do Facebook pretty heavily, so you can easily find me there.
0: Yeah, check him out if you're interested in know more about OCU or uh, you just want to give Mm -hmm. him a hard time. He likes that.
1: I I do have uh, two graduate assistantships still open for next year. So there you go. Yeah. Little
0: ad there. (laughs) Um, If you need to get in touch with me, everybody knows what to do. This is the hundredth time I've said this, but the literal (laughs) hundredth time I've said it, but uh, you can find me on that's not spit.com at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a rating and a review on iTunes and do not forget to share it on social media so other people can find it. Professor, thank you for giving me your time and your uh, conversation. It was a real pleasure for me. I appreciate it.
1: I always enjoy it. Our conversations are the best. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing.